So today we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2. My intention is is to look at the whole 25 verses of Exodus 2. In Exodus 1, we saw the end of about a 430 year gap from the time Jacob moved his family into Egypt until the beginning of this book. His Israel, Egypt, or Israel, Jacob, his family was greatly multiplied. They started with 75, and by the time we get to uh, another 40 years from now, there'll be about 2 million people, probably, give or take a fair amount. But we know there will be 600 and some thousand men at the end of the Exodus of soldiering age. Uh, they have become mighty in the land, and they filled it. Uh, Uh, filled it with themselves. They've got a new king, a new pharaoh, and he voiced his need to be shrewd with these Hebrews. He looks around as a new kingdom and he says, we've got to be shrewd here. Why did he think they needed to be shrewd? Remember from last week? Willie Floyd off the hook, he wasn't here. Remember what we said last week? What's that? Say it. You say what you said. Why did the new Pharaoh in chapter 1 say, we've got to be shrewd in dealing with these Hebrews? He was afraid the Jews or the Hebrews were building too much strength and could overcome. Yeah, they were building too much strength that could become a threat, particularly if they were in a war, they could join our enemies and overtake us and even leave our land. And so what was his solution? Well, when they came up with, okay, so how are we going to be shrewd with them? What was his first uh, answer to that? Have the Israeli midwives uh, make sure the baby boys didn't survive birth. Well, actually, that's that's, that's answer number two. Heavy burden. Work them to death. Just work them into the ground. And uh, did that work so well? No, they just kept getting. No, the more they worked them, the more there were. Um, and so they put taskmasters over them. They had hard labor in everything they were doing, and he had them build two storage cities, and it just didn't work out. The Israelites just kept growing more and more and more. And so their response initially was that they just intensified that labor demand even more, and then the king came up with a new strategy, and he asked the midwives, as Alan said, to put the baby boys when they were born to death. And... How did that work out? Not so good. Yeah, because what did the midwives do? Obey God rather than men. Ignored the king's edict. And uh, of course the king is seeing that uh, we're still getting lots of more Hebrews around here. And uh, so he questioned the midwives. And what did they tell him? In a, in, in a certain way, he, they were even complimenting these Hebrew women. You know, these these are these are strong women. They are they're go getters, and they have babies quick, and they go back to work quick. And we can't get there by the time that the babies are born. And as a result of that conversation, we brought up Romans thirteen one through five last time, and I feel like I handled that poorly. Uh, but I want to go, let's go over to Romans 13, 1 through 5. We're just going to take two or three minutes and talk about this so that if I sent somebody in a circle last week, we can straighten them out. Or if I was in a circle last week, we can straighten me out, however that needs to be said. 
Hebrews 13, 1 through 5. Hebrews or I'm sorry, Romans. <coughs> Excuse me. I've got, <coughs> I've got Hebrews on my mind for later. Um, I, I'll, I'll read that. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, meaning the government. For it is a minister of God as an avenger for those who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And um, as we talked about last time, this is, if you wanted to boil this down, this would say, be a good citizen. You don't want to be the one that's known for being a troublemaker or theft or all of those things or just, just being opposed to any order. Uh, I'm sure all of us have met a person like that. But this is talking about being a good citizen and not doing what word? I think it was in verse 4, evil. But this is not a mandate for us to do whatever the government says if the government asks us to do evil things. And so we should never consider this either as an excuse or a mandate to just go along when we're going along with something that is evil. And these ladies were being asked to do something evil. Can we agree on that very easily? And they looked at it and said no. And so they didn't kill those baby boys. And they provided some protection for those Hebrew women to move away from this solution that it's unworkable when they're telling the king uh, they give birth too fast. So it, it, in a sense, they do two really good things here. They're moving the king off of Pharaoh, off of a plan of evil. That plan wasn't workable because the Hebrews women just gave birth so easily and quickly. And so we would not find fault with them under any way, shape, or form. You can start what ifing, and that'll get you in trouble every time. There are no what ifs in God's kingdom because God controls even the details. If we were to what if, we could say, well, what if they had just told him the truth? We're not cooperating with your evil. And sometimes you need to look a government in the eye and say, I'm not doing your evil. And, and let that be a part of your stand for Christ. And... If they had done that, okay, now I'm what-ifing. That's dangerous. That's even somewhat foolish. But God could have taken care of them as well that way if that's the way he had led them. But the way he led them here, they were men who intentionally served God and wouldn't do evil. And uh, so that plan kind of fell by the wayside. We don't ever get any information that says he rescinded the order, but it's clear they they didn't find it dependable and it wasn't working and it wasn't, there wasn't pressure, additional pressure added to make it continue to work. And I think that's a pretty straightforward way of thinking about this. We're citizens of more than one kingdom. And we need to be good citizens for us of the U.S. But we're also citizens of the kingdom of God. That's the real kingdom 
that we're a part of is in the citizens of the kingdom of God, God says, be as good as citizens as you can of your country as well. But when the government asks you to do evil, then your primary citizenship is with God himself. And we could read all about through the book of Hebrews about people who did not look for this kingdom to be the kingdom. And the book chapter of faith in Hebrews 11, we're going to look there today a while at something else. But in that, our citizenship of heaven, we're not, we're not trying to make this country heaven. We're trying to take us through life to go to heaven <coughs> itself, to be a part of the kingdom of God while here on earth and then later on in reality where there are no tears and there is no suffering. That's our ultimate goal. Questions, comments, does that make sense? Um, I wasn't thinking along those lines last week, so I was a bit slow with my responses and I wanted to straighten that out in case I've made any errors. So, the dealing with the midwives to put baby boys to death didn't work out so well. So what is Pharaoh's next strategy? What does he demand of his nation? If you see them, kill them. Yeah, if you see Hebrew babies, boys, they're to die. And how are they to die? You throw them in the Nile. And so that's where we left off last week in Exodus chapter 1. Anything else you want to say about chapter 1? Not a, not a real kindly government if you're a Hebrew boy, huh? Hebrew baby boy. So let's go look now at Exodus chapter 2. And let's start out by reading the first 10 verses. And I would really appreciate a volunteer to do that for us. And he, the man of the house of Levi went and took his wife, a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when he saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him in three, in, with three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bush for him, dubbed it with asphalt and pitch, and put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood off afar to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river. And her maidens walked along the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, so that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and, ca and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. Very good, thank you. And so we see in this account of what of Moses' start here that his parents are both Levites. A Levi man marries a Levi woman, so they're within the tribe of Levi, and she bore to him a baby, a boy. And she saw that boy was beautiful. And so she took it upon herself to hide him for three months. Now, I don't know how big of a challenge that was. I would think it would be somewhat of a challenge uh, to keep a baby hidden. I know 
in my own family, my son just recently had a child, Jennifer's had several, and when they're little and young, they're not exactly quiet, and they have lots of needs, and there are things, I mean, we, we, it's just obvious you're caring for a baby. You got all the baby care stuff around, you're doing all the baby care things, and it disrupts your schedule, and on you go. But she did that for three months. In verse 3, though, it said she couldn't hide him anymore. And so she put him in this wicker basket that was covered with tar and pitch. Um, and I always had been taught that the tar was oil-based and the pitch was tree sap. But when I look up the words in the, in the Hebrew uh, cross-references, I can't tell a difference between them. So I don't know tar and pitch. I don't know what's what. I would have said that if I hadn't looked it up, but Bing's I did. They're both oil-based according to what scholars today say those Hebrew words meant. But she puts this child in this basket and places the basket among the reeds in the Nile. And we know from later on that they have to open the basket, so apparently it's got some sort of a cover over it, and he's air floating in the Nile. In one sense, I mean, did she do what the king's edict said, throw your baby in the Nile? No. <laughs> But in a very minor sense, he's in the Nile, and she placed this child over around some weeds. And I just got a question. Doing this shows what? What word would you put on this that you would say was a part of this mother's thought process when she put that child in the basket? And I, what's that? Compassion. Compassion. Trusting. I, I, yeah, I, so the word I would have said was hope, but faith goes right along with that. I mean, she's trusting that God's going to take care of this baby, and she has hope that something good can come out of that. Um, and we don't know if this was a command of the parents or she did it on her own. I would guess it was part of a family plot or plan. Plot sounds negative, but I don't mean it negatively. But the sister parks herself there and watches from a distance. And so she's spying on what's happening with this little baby brother of mine. And in verse 5, we see that Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe herself. She has her maidens with her. And um, the very fact that she comes down to that place in the Nile to do it, I would guess that she's probably pretty habitual in her habits. So that might have even been somewhat strategic. Egypt women come down here to bathe, or royalty comes down here to bathe. I'm not sure who, but I would, it's a, it's a, a speculation, but I'll bet you there was some strategy about where they chose to put this baby in the Nile. And so when Pharaoh's daughter comes down there to bathe, she's got her servants with her maidens, and she sees this basket. And obviously it's a basket, it's not some thing of nature it's man-made you can tell that and so she sends her maidens over to grab this basket and when they bring the basket out she opens it and the boy is crying and probably the best translation of the word is she took pity but certainly she had compassion she looked at this boy and it touched her heart she was moved to see that this baby needed help and saw it as a normal compassionate person would see a baby it's one thing to sit back in the palace 
and make a decree to throw the baby boys in the Nile. It's another thing to go out and do it personally yourself, isn't it? One of the things, and <clears throat> I don't mean to be, I don't know if the right word is morbid or what, but, and I, I can't explain my fascination with Hitler's Germany, but one of the biggest reasons that they quit killing Jews with bullets was you had to have a man fire the gun. And after doing that for a period of time, those soldiers were ruined as soldiers. They couldn't do it anymore, and that's when they made the decision. It wasn't the only reason, but that was a part of their reason for turning their um, hatred of the Jews and their desire to extinguish them to more of an industrial method where nobody had to watch them die because men couldn't watch that kind of inhumanity to man and not be affected. So here's Pharaoh's daughter and she sees this baby, her heart's touched, and so the baby's sister shows up quickly. And what does she say to this princess? Well, it's not exactly the way she says it, but it's close. Yeah, how about we get a Hebrew woman? I can go get a Hebrew woman that could nurse the baby for you. And uh, the response is, yes, go. And so she goes and gets, of course, her mother, which is the baby's mother. And there's obviously some interchange and interaction between the two um, where um, the princess tells <coughs> Moses' mother that if you nurse her, I'll pay you to do so, and nurse her as my child. And so that indeed is what happens. It's really amazing, I think, to think about what could have happened at home. Um, here is this daughter of Pharaoh who has commanded that all the baby boys from the Hebrews be thrown into the Nile, and it's said in the text, she recognized this as a Hebrew baby boy. And she says, I'm going to take him for my own. I just, nothing is said about it, but I just, at some point in time, there's going to have to be a conversation with dad. I've got a son. Well, sort of. I didn't give birth to him, but he's mine now. Well, what? Yeah, I found this Hebrew baby boy, and I'm making him mine. I just, I, I just, that's not an example of following the Pharaoh's orders very well, uh, but maybe they're like typical um, royalty or people in governance or the elite. Those are the rules for the people, not necessarily for me, so maybe it was just she could do what she wanted. I don't know, but she was unable to follow her dad's order, and she did not throw this baby into the Nile to die. And can you imagine what the family felt when they brought Moses home? Literally home to their house. Back in, they don't have to hide him now. They can be open. I'm doing this on behalf of the princess. Um, and so they have their son at home. Um, they don't need to hide it. And... Can you imagine how thankful they were to God? Because 
that would not be what you might have expected to be the result of an Egyptian finding a baby boy floating in a basket. And then in verse 10 it says, The boy grew, <clears throat> and as he grew to the age where it was time, he was taken to the princess, and she indeed became her son. And it's at this point that she names him. He gets his name Moses. I don't know if they had another name they used for him around the house or anything like that when he was with the Hebrew family of his own. But that name Moses means drawn, and she said, for I drew him out of the water, so he was drawn. And we don't have anything specific written here, but it goes without saying, to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter, you're in the number one family of the nation, and there's going to be a lot of privilege with that. There's going to be a lot of attention with that. You're going to get an education one of the things that the Egyptians were into, see if this sounds like home, was outdoor sports. They were much involved in sports and the royalty that had the time, their primary sports were archery and horseback riding. So um, he probably had many opportunities to go out and be with the elite and, and do those things as he grew and learned. Another thing that was important in their education often was languages. So he very well could have <clears throat> received language training in many different languages, maybe including a Canaan dialect, who knows. And so here's Moses. He was put by faith in the water, in the Nile, and he's brought home, he's raised up. When the time's right, he goes into the household of Pharaoh, and he's raised as the very daughter of Pharaoh. Um, <clears throat> who, uh, who wrote this book? Moses. Who's this book about? Moses. Well. A point I really want to make here is I read chapter 2. When you think about Moses wrote this <clears throat> about the time of the Exodus, the time that he was tasked by God to lead these people out of Egypt into the Promised Land, of course, they don't get into the promised land under his direction because of various sins, including one of his own. But <clears throat> that's what God is doing through him. <clears throat> Few, excuse me. <clears throat> I think I've got it under control. Few men writing out of their own intellect and their own memories would be so nondescript about how I grew up. I mean, here's Moses in his formative years. And in the rest of this chapter, we're going to so quickly take him through uh, the time up until God calls him to go back and lead these people. And he just doesn't get very descriptive about himself and what it was like and giving insight into this is what I thought and this is this and this is that. He's pretty laid back with regard to who he is. Moses really wrote this book about God. And he wrote it in the third person. When he talks about Moses, he talks about himself. He's not out there making him into somebody. And he, he, it's not a story about him. And so he is very quick to point out his own failures to point out his own impatience, to point out his own inabilities, 
And so here's a book written by a man who does not build himself up, but instead builds up God, shows the patient God that led him with great strength and power and great grace as they prosecuted the exodus. Questions or comments so far? Okay, well let's look at verses 11 through 15. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh... That's wrong. Oh, I'm sorry. I I said through 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Okay, you were right. I was wrong. Um, <clears throat> I got fooled by a division here in, in, on the paper, print, printed page. So, as Moses becomes an adult, verse 11a is huge. By 11a, I mean the first half of it. When it came about in those days, when Moses had grown up, that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. Um, and he saw the Egyptian beating a Hebrew and one of his brethren. Right here we see that Moses, when he grew up, he went out to his brethren. And that isn't a um, verbose or extremely descriptive phrase. But we know that Moses, when he became an adult, he turned aside from the house of Pharaoh. And I'm going to save a passage in Hebrews 11 for a little later to talk about this decision that Moses made. And we'll spend some time with it. Don't know, we're not given by Moses why he did it, but in the book of Hebrews we'll certainly get some strong insight as to why he made this change. But he identified with the Hebrews Uh, And he went out to his brethren, and he saw their hard labors. So he's moved by what he sees and the hard work they're being given to do. And he sees an Egyptian, probably an overseer, not necessarily, but I would guess that it was, beating one of his brethren. And so he looks at this, and he becomes defensive on the part of his brethren. In verse 12, he looked around this way and that. And he saw there was no one around, and so he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Can you see this playing out in your mind? I mean, he's, he's been careful. He's concerned about who might see this. And from the way it's written, it almost seems like the two people he was beating aren't there anymore. At least not within his visual sight, and we'll see that in a little bit. But so when he sees that it's just me and this Egyptian... He strikes that Egyptian and kills him, buries him in the sand. And 
he apparently thinks, okay, uh, nobody knows I did this, and he's walking around with this secret uh, defensive killing of this Egyptian for the way he was treating his brethren. But verse 13, that kind of blows up. He went out the next day, and behold, he saw two Hebrews fighting with each other. And so he comes up to the Hebrews, and he says, Why are you striking your companion? And the one in verse 14 says, uh, the one, he, he asked the offender, and the offender says, Who made you a prince or a judge over us? And this is where Moses kind of has the rug pulled out from unto him. Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And so Moses heard that, was afraid, and said, Surely the matter has become known. <clears throat> when Moses struck the Egyptian, what was the, his, why did he do that? He, he's, he's seeing this man in an offensive role against his brethren. He's identifying as a Hebrew, and he's reacting out of uh, his motivation for this is wrong to treat my brethren this way. When he comes upon the two Hebrews fighting, and he asks the offender... Why are you striking him? How does the offender view Moses? Does he see him as a brethren? No. no. You're just the guy that thinks he's a big shot. He doesn't recognize that Moses' previous action had within it some motivation based on the fact you're beating up my brethren. He was identifying with the Hebrews. But here he's like, are you here to be judge over us too? Are you going to kill me? And... I think Moses was probably, shocked. yeah, shocked and just couldn't believe his ears because, no, I did that to protect you. I'm not going to come now and kill you. And um, so Moses became afraid. What was he afraid of? And what's going to happen if he gets found out? Yeah, it's not going to go well, and we're going to see that in the verses coming up. But in his mind, he goes, okay, everybody knows this. If those guys knew it, these Hebrew brethren, if they knew it, I have to assume everybody knows. And so he is greatly frightened. Um, so let's go ahead now and read. Um, did I skip something? No. All good there. Yeah, I'm going to turn another page. But we're going to read 16 to 22. It's not quite to the end of the book. Who will now help? The priest of Midden and the seven daughters, and they came and drew water. Nope. I'm sorry. Water. 16. Start with 16. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. My fault. Okay. I, I didn't talk about 15. Found the problem. It was me. Let's go back to 15. I'm still looking at this division in the New American Standard and thinking that's where we broke off, but it isn't. So in verse 15, when Pharaoh hears about the matter, what matter? Moses killed an Egyptian, an overseer probably. What was Pharaoh's response? Yep, yeah, we're not going to have this. I imagine that there probably even were some thoughts in the background. I knew when my daughter brought him home this wasn't a good idea. But anyway, uh, he tried to kill Moses. Moses fled then from the presence of Pharaoh 
So he's running for his life, if you will. And he settled in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Where is Midian? Well, it's in Arabia. So this is really going to be crude, but if you have Egypt, you have the Red Sea over in here. You have, I'm going to get this drawn wrong. You have the Sinai. Oops. Uh, I might have misspelled that. And then you have the Gulf of Aquaba. And over here is Midian. Up here is Israel. Well, really, Israel's over here. And then down in here is before, above the Red Sea. I didn't leave myself enough room. You, when, when Abraham was traveling around and he was in the Negev, that's this desert or plain area up in here. So he went considerably east, uh, both crossed the Red Sea or went north of it, maybe on land. But he's beyond the Red Sea and he's beyond the Gulf of Aquaba. Many of you probably have a, a map in the back of your Bible that would show that to you very well. So he's over there. He gets to Midian, and he sits down by a well. Now, okay. Claire Marie, I'm sorry. 16 okay. to 22. Shall I start with 16 then again? Please. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to rural, their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the, hand, from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us to water the flock. So he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that you have left a man? Call him that he may come and eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zephariah, Zephariah, his daughter to Moses, and she bore him a son, and he called his his name Gershom, for he said, "I have been a stranger in a foreign land." Okay, so Moses takes himself to Midian, finds a well, and parks himself there, and this little drama plays out in front of him. There's this priest of Midian, and we're going to see him. Uh, called Ruel here. Uh, later on, he also goes under the name Jethro as Moses' father-in-law. But so we have this priest of Midian. Very unlikely that he is a priest in the sense of as a God follower. Now, before we're done with the book, we're going to see that he does give Jehovah a lot of honor and sides with Moses and helps him figure out some leadership issues and. He's going to play a very good role in the Exodus. But he's a priest there, and he has seven daughters. So the seven daughters have a job. What's their job? Water the flock. Take the flocks to the well, draw the water, put it in troughs, let the flocks drink their water. And shepherds came and drove them away. So as this drama's playing out, what does Moses do? Yeah, he comes to the defense of these seven daughters of Ruel, and he stood up and he confronts the shepherds and 
uh, he's enough of a force, obviously, that they then let the water be drawn. Moses draws the water, uh, helps them in that, and they draw enough that they water all the flocks. And so that worked out well for these daughters. So then the seven daughters come home to their father, and apparently this worked so well, or this conflict was normal, where they get run off, they have to wait till the shepherds are done, then they come back, and how it played out, I don't know. <clears throat> but with Moses, they're helping. They come back so soon, the father goes, hey, this is unusual. How'd you get done so quickly today? And they said, an Egyptian. So that tells us a little bit about Moses' appearance at that point. He was dressing or had the appearance of, in some fashion, as an Egyptian. But he delivered us from the hands of these shepherds. And what's more, he didn't stop there. He could have just made the shepherds behave while we were there. But he even drew water for us, and he watered the flock. And so Ruel's going like, where's your hospitality, girls? This guy did this much, and then you just go off and leave him? Uh, why? We ought to be inviting him to eat with us. And Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to him as a wife. She bore a son and named him Gershom. And, and he named him Gershom because he says, I'm a foreigner in this land. That's the, what the word Gershom means, is foreigner. And so... In just these few verses, we move from Moses running from Pharaoh for the fear of his life to actually being married with his own wife over in Midian, living with uh, his wife's parent, his wife's dad in their house. And... They have a son, and so now we're at Moses already has his family started. And let's read then verses 23 through 25. Now it happened in the process of the time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came upon God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. All right. So Moses is over there in Midian, and after all those things, in the course of these many days. So somewhere in this time it took for Moses to move from running for his life in Egypt from Pharaoh to being a family man with a son, somewhere in this length of time, which was many days according to the word, uh, the king of Egypt dies. And obviously, when the king dies, what do you get? A new king. So apparently, things aren't better under the new king. Because under the new king, the sons of Israel were groaning because of the bondage. It's more than work. They are feeling the intensity of working as slaves. And they cried out. Who did they cry out to? Well, it was a cry that God heard. And I'm, I don't doubt they talk to each other plenty, but um, my anticipation is they cried out, they cried for help. Who can help them? Well, the only help they could turn to would be God. They knew they were children of the promise. And so here we are, children of the promise, working as slaves in this land. And uh, as they cried out, 
and their bondage, that, that cry rose up to God, and God heard their groaning. Was God deaf to them before that? No, but this is a time when God's looking at it and he goes, yes, I'm hearing this. And he remembered, which means he put it together with his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here are the descendants of Abraham, children of the promise. They're being uh, oppressed. They're, they're under bondage. They're working as slaves. And they're doing that because there are so many of them. What was the promise to Abraham? What was that original covenant with Abraham? Go back over to Genesis 12 for a minute. This is the time Abraham initially was called by the Lord, and the Lord said in verse 1, Genesis 12, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. nation. Are they a nation yet? Not in the way we would think of a nation for sure. They're a great people. I will bless you. Are they blessed? Well, in a way... I mean, it's not a blessing that they're living under, but they were moved to Egypt and they've become a great number of people and they're blessed in that God is continuing to grow them, but they're living under this oppression, so it's limited. The ones who curse you, I will curse. Are they being cursed? Yeah, they're living under a curse of bondage under Pharaoh. And so, uh, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So is not the promise very much yet unfulfilled. And so God heard and he remembered his covenant and God saw the sons of Israel and took notice of them. They've got his attention now as we look at verse 25. And so this sets the stage for what God is going to do in chapter 3, which is call Moses to go over and be his representative with the help of Aaron and take his people out of this bondage into the promised land. But before we get into that, I want to go back to verse 11, the first part. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up, he went out to his brethren. And to really understand that, uh, we have, under the work of the Holy Spirit in the book of Hebrews, a much clearer explanation of what Moses did when he departed. Go over to Hebrews 11, departed from Pharaoh's house, to associate with the brethren. Go over to Hebrews 11. Uh, We're going to look at verses 23 through 27. And there's even another verse or two in here, but it kind of goes beyond uh, where we're at today in the book of Exodus. Uh, Let's see if I can make it work. Hebrews 11, 23 through 27. Now, I'll read those for you. 
Um, oops, what did I do wrong? I'm not in Hebrews 11. That's the problem. Okay. This is about Moses. Hebrews 11, 23 through 27. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Think about that for a minute. We could make up a lot of things in our mind about why a mother with a child would put a baby in a basket in the Nile to try to save its life. But when we look at what the writer of Hebrews tells us about the faith of Moses' mother and family here, it was by faith. It wasn't just desperation. By faith, they put him in the basket. And by faith, what's Moses' motivation? By faith, when he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I'm not part of Pharaoh's household. By rejecting that, what was he affirming? Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than in to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And if you looked at the King James or authorized version, it said, for a season. And I think that's valuable. As we look there at verse 25, he, through his faith, not, not just out of some ethnic desire to be part of the group he was born with, but out of faith, this says, by following God. He looked around and says, I want to follow God. I trust God. This, this is where it's at. This business of being in Pharaoh's house, that's, that's not for me, and it would have been a sinful place to stay. Verse 26 and this is where it gets interesting. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for a reward. And by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Moses doesn't say a lot about it, but the book of Hebrews makes it clear what's going on with Moses as he rejects being part of the house of Pharaoh to choose to be a part of the Hebrew nation, God's chosen people, even though choosing to go that path meant he would likely and did undergo a lot of suffering as a result of aligning himself with the Hebrews rather than with the ruling power of the Egyptians. And so he put a number of things aside that looked like sure bets. That's the way we might say it today. I mean, from a worldly perspective, if somebody's part of the ruling class, they, I mean, it's easy street. You can relax, and as a friend of mine used to say about when things were going well and he could just live off of what he'd already done, he was clipping coupons. He could have just kept right on going in this family of pharaohs, but he set that aside so that he could be aligned with the Hebrews, even though that meant suffering. And he did that by faith, but notice he was seeking a reward. 
what kind of reward was Moses seeking? <clears throat> it's like everything else we see in the book. He wanted book. to be in God's favor. He wanted to be in God's favor. He was aligning himself with the one true living God instead of all those gods that the Egyptians That's had that were just that. nothing. Yeah. He didn't want that. So he wanted to be with God, but there's, there's a lot more we could talk about here. And then we're going to make sure we don't miss this one phrase. But, I mean, these are the children of the promise. The promise is still there. The promise doesn't look vibrant at this moment. But they still had faith in the promise. <clears throat> and he wanted to be, he wanted to be, he was convicted, that's the right place to be and I'm going there. Regardless of any personal price I have to pay in the short run. But there's a phrase in there that says, considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Where did Moses get his interaction with Christ? Okay, the burning bush is a Christophany, but he made the decision before the burning bush. He had to get it from his parents. He had to get it from his parents. Okay. His mother. His mother, I mean, his family, <laughs> other Hebrews that he interacted with, but until he was old enough to go to Pharaoh's house, right? Well, there's, there's some things that we ought to see and know uh, when we think about Moses choosing Christ. For one thing, the promise contained the words, your nation will be a blessing to all nations. And there was an expectation for a deliverer. And so what level of detail did, we, did he have about Christ? I don't know, but... Here's an interesting passage we ought to go look at. John 5, 45 and 46. John 5, 45 and 46. Ooh, there we go. Now maybe as a young man, Moses didn't have the full perspective of the role as a prophet. It doesn't appear he's going to be called as a prophet until the burning bush. But nonetheless, God is at work in Moses' life. And Jesus, as recorded here in the book of John, makes it clear as he's talking to these people who are Hebrews... I'm not going to accuse you because there's no need for you to be accused. You've already been accused. Moses is your accuser because he wrote about me. So as Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, in those books, Christ is already there. Back when we studied Genesis 1. Go back to Genesis 1. Christ appears in Genesis 1. 
I didn't have this verse down, so uh, okay. Now I know it's here, but I gotta I gotta see it. Uh, well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless, without void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. God said, let there be light. And it continues down when we get to the creation of man. He talks about, let us make man in our image. And I've lost, my, my eyes won't pick it out where, he talks, where it talks about um, Christ. Um, <coughs> It's, it's in that first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, made second verse in the earth. And, and, and it was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering, moving over the surface of the waters. Okay, I've lost it. I shouldn't do that on my, when I haven't looked it up ahead of time. I hadn't thought about going to that verse. But go to John 1.1. 1, 1. I mean, we can, we can get there. When you look at John chapter 1 and those first four verses, it's extremely clear, without any doubt, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And so, Jesus is a part of this from the beginning, and Moses is writing down these words and the Spirit of God being noted in Genesis 1. God is, Jehovah is noted in Genesis 1. And so we see the great I am and we see the Christophany of the burning bush. Moses is writing about Christ. Did he identify him as Savior? Did he see him on the cross? Probably, I don't know. I don't know exactly what details to attribute to Moses, but Jesus Himself says it's here. Did you find what I missed? No. That might be right. Oh, our likeness. Yeah, I mean it, it's there. I mean, the, the challenge that we have when we read things like the Old Testament is that we think of it as the time without Christ if we're not careful. If we have our understanding of the scriptures right and we say it's the time with Christ but not under the name of Christ, it's dripping off the pages everywhere. And it's clear that Moses was looking forward to the time of Christ in many different ways as he recorded even uh, Genesis 3 and the fall and the curse on the snake and the woman clearly we've got Christ there Moses wrote about that because her offspring will bruise his head and you will bruise his heel we're talking about the war between Satan and God as identified through Christ himself and so <coughs> Moses at some point in time is becoming more and more aware of the third member of the Trinity, meaning Jesus himself, 
as he is putting together these words. And so it's, it's, it's interesting to look at what was going on with the faith of Moses as he rejected the house of Pharaoh and chose instead to be aligned with his brethren who were in slavery. Questions, comments? Yes, sir. Yeah, Rick, I think Paul does a great job of really developing this very point in Galatians 3.16. Mm-hmm. Read that for us if you got it. Now the promises, that would be the covenant, mm-hmm. were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seed, and to mm-hmm. many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. Mm-hmm. So God in his covenant spoke to and taught Abraham that a seed, would be the blessing. coming to bless all nations to be a redeemer. Yep, that's Hebrews knew that hundreds of years before they go down to this time, Moses would have been taught that a seed, a savior, a deliverer, a messiah was coming. Mm-hmm. And that was to be Christ. And he would even probably have more revelation that's not recorded. But we don't see like Paul really clearly delineates that Yeah, that's a that's a great verse to make that very clear. Now, I just had one other comment that was is somewhat relevant to the story in the fact that Moses married a Midianite woman mm-hmm. who was a century separated and all lost cousin. If you go back to... I didn't mention that. I've got it in my notes. ...brother to Midian. Moses actually married a relative. So I think it's important to the story that of all the hundreds of nations of people which Moses could have went to, he chose to flee to Midian. He's looking for another offspring, Abraham. Yep. So he married two offsprings of Abraham, were married. And uh, then we see that Jethro was involved in the Exodus and they were supporting Moses. He was a priest of Midian, and small revelations unveiled. So I think the fact that he went to Midian and married a Midianite woman has some relevance to the other yeah, I was I was looking for Moses, you know, had Moses scratch. Abraham had a second family after um the one the children he had with Sarah. And it's this second family are the ones that descendants of Midian came out of. And I was looking for his second wife's name and I've forgotten. Keturah. Keturah, yes. Keturah. I, I can't see it in my notes quickly enough. So that he, they are still offspring of Abraham that he is married to. Which, by the way, there's going to be an event come up very quickly as we study through Exodus where Moses is in opposition to God, and we'll get there. But very likely, these Midianites were practicing, and that's why the priest at Media might have been a God follower. The historians say, mm, but, you know, who are historians? And, but uh, um, the, the idea of circumcision was probably being practiced because they're offsprings of Abraham. Aren't, aren't they going to be told? I mean, they're not children of the promise because they're not through Isaac. But I'll bet you that Mo- Abraham taught them the practice of circumcision, but I don't know that for a fact. Yeah, it looks like they knew. Ex- it sure looks like it. 
and we're going to get that very soon. All right, thank you. I've kept you a few minutes over. Have a great morning.